when I arrived in Oregon, you know, the word that was tossed around was colorblind. Um, treating everybody the same. Well, the problem is in a society that's embedded upon native genocide, slavery, the Oregon exclusion laws. I mean, so we can't treat everybody the same if everybody hasn't had the same principles and particularly if people have been targeted because of their race. So equity, uh, it includes the power dynamics that are, that are embedded within race. That was Brandon Lee, who brings a lifetime of his own personal experience and a historical lens as we explore the topic of equity within community corrections, law enforcement, and in our own personal lives. Brandon is the co-founder of Training for Transformation and is well-renowned for helping to turn traumatic circumstances into hopeful ones. You'll notice in this episode, I step back a little bit to listen and learn from the wisdom shared by Brandon throughout. This is also an area where Marcus is emerging as a leader, and I think you'll see that play out in this conversation. The end of this episode does not represent the end of the discussion, rather a starting point for us to grow from. This is Corrections Community with Brandon Lee. We are very happy to be here. This is something that we've been wanting to do since we, since the inception of our uh, of our show here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be talking about equity, um, equity in community corrections, and what that looks like. And uh, what better person to do that with than Brandon Lee? Um, I'm going to introduce Brandon a little bit, but I'm going to uh, definitely turn it over to him to introduce himself some more because he has a plethora of things that he has been involved with in, in Oregon, uh, internationally, and uh, across the country. So. Uh, Brandon, he's uh, uh, got a master's in teaching. Uh, he's taught and learned in numerous countries um, around the world and numerous organizations. He is the f- he uh, was the first grand historian of the Prince Hall Grand Lodge here in our region, um, kind of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, I believe. Um, He's involved in uh, or has been involved in the Oregon Law Enforcement Data Collection and Policy Review Committee. I was uh, responsible for House Bill 2355. Um, he's been involved with the NAACP. Um, he has taught and led conversations around racism, trauma, he- uh, healing, police brutality, best practices in law enforcement, leading with race. Um, he's got a book um, that's that's out, and there's also uh, a revision coming uh, this fall, 2021. It's called Best Practices in Community Conscious Policing. Um, so, yeah, really excited to have you here. Thank you for being here. And and like I said, uh, you, you're you so much more than those things that I said. So uh, give us a little bit of, uh, of your story. Sure. Uh, first, I just want to thank you, Marcus and Chris, for inviting me to um, share space with you today. Appreciate the generous introduction. Um, I have definitely been working for quite some time, uh, even before I knew that I would be working in, in, you know, with law enforcement and community. I think I've always kind of been on this path. Um, I began in, my story begins in Oakland, California. I was, um, my mom, my, my mother's side of the family, um, grandparents came from Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was from Port Arthur, my grandfather in Longview, Texas. Um, my grandfather attended Prairie View A and M University, historically black college university. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know a little bit about I guess this story to kind of kick off the conversation, and then I'll I'll weave my more of my story in through the conversation. Okay. Um, he was a um, college graduate. He owned a tailoring business. 
He was famous for uh, accentuating the parts that you know men would want to would want to share in their suits mm. or show in their suits, mm. and for kind of hiding the parts that men wouldn't want to <laughs> display in their suits. Uh, and so I thank him. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, Grandma said that was his niche. So he was successful on his own business, and uh, the way that uh, he never told me the story, but the way that it was shared with me, kind of oral tradition, was uh, he got a 1949 cherry cherry red Buick convertible mm. and he was I guess somewhere in rural Texas uh, was stopped by local law enforcement back then uh, especially if you were considered what they would call uppity or uh, had you know some some level of success um, you know he feared for his life I don't know exactly how but in some type of way he was able to defend himself get out of that situation but when he got home um, the story had already made it to town Mm-hmm. And he had to leave before nightfall, wow. essentially. Hmm. And that's wow. kind of the oral tradition that was passed on on how he came to California. And so, you know, it's uh, the work that I do has definitely been embedded, you know, from yeah. a cultural perspective. And, um, hmm. um, yeah, I'll share a little bit more as we get more into the questions. But, yeah, from Oakland, California, uh, and now living and working out of Portland. Yeah, and um, you do a lot of work with law enforcement in this area. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, the context was, um, number one, I'm an educator. It's my background. So what brought me to Oregon first was I was a faculty member and administrator, the first director of fraternity and sorority life at Oregon State University. Uh, And I taught English as a second language. And so I was at Oregon State University. This is maybe around 2000. 12, 13, 14, so this would have been Trayvon Martin, mm-hmm. Michael Brown, and the students that I were working with to support didn't have any spaces to go on campus to be able to process what was going through. There were hate crimes happening on campus simultaneously. Mm. Uh, so there was just a lot of targeted incidents, and some of my students were literally flunking out of school. Wow. So it started merely as a space to how do we create or design some type of space to support our students. Um, And so from that conversation, we administered um, uh, some uh, student surveys. And in the feedback, we found out, not we didn't find out, but students confirmed that they were having some racial profiling related circumstances by police. Mm -hmm. But the only thing was they didn't name the particular agency. Right. And so that's in some of our advocacy work is letting folks know what to pay attention to. So yeah. mm-hmm. I was NAACP Legal Redress Committee chairman. Um, we uh, took these surveys to our local law enforcement. Uh, there was the city of Corvallis Police Department. Uh, you know, as far as the world of public safety, they've earned a lot of different accreditations. Kalia accredited a lot of respect, you know, as far as uh, in the public safety realm, mm-hmm. at least at that time. I'm not sure, you know, since then. Uh, and they embraced the conversation with us. Mm. So that was a pivotal moment. You know, uh, if I would have had, you know, a specific agency to speak to in regards to these student surveys, then we probably would have began the conversation from a legal redress perspective. Hmm. But they were receptive. They had quantitative data. I had qualitative data, stories. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when two bosses sit down, peace has to, to, peace has to dwell. And so from that, we designed our first community conscious policing workshop. Uh, the uh, you know um, and give shout out and respect to Corvallis Police Department for um, this was a community led effort we designed it uh, myself I identify as a uh, Black American but um, my wife is uh, Asian Cambodian refugee so we were the impacted communities yeah. 
And uh, we did our first training. And from there, we were tapped by Department of Public Safety Standards and Training. Uh, I think this time was um, George Floyd in Baltimore. So literally, there were states of emergency during the time when we were mm -hmm. doing this. And we brought uh, law enforcement from around the state. We recruited community members. Law enforcement came. Uh, no uniforms, no guns, at least very least concealed. And, um, you know, we trained law enforcement in the community together. And I think it was the first time that we've had that many community members in the law enforcement training center in Salem. Hmm. So anyway, that was kind of the blueprint of our work, the local level in Corvallis and then the statewide level with, you know, dozens of agencies yeah. for annual spring training. Hmm. That's uh, that's awesome that you bring that up. Um, uh, one of the things that that's really important is uh, when we talk about quantitative versus qualitative data in minority communities. Uh, storytelling is such an important piece and I like that uh, you said that but then you also started our podcast here with the story so I just wanted to reflect on that <laughs> yeah that's great so that I go ahead Chris well I want to so you know we're talking about your origin story here a bit and you know you just talked about how you in the beginning of your advocacy uh, starting here in Corvallis and then the um, you know the the story about your grandfather in Texas, and 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 I want I know we can get into kind of trauma and generational trauma, but I, before we do that, I, I want to get more into your story because mm -hmm. I know you went you you came to Oregon from Oakland, California, and so I want to I want I want to hear more about your experience. Um, I I know that in previous conversations you haven't had a lot of um, uh, contact with with folks who work in in our field and community mm -hmm. corrections, mm -hmm. but you have had, had an experience working with law enforcement, um, and not just working working for law enforcement or with law enforcement just but um just kind of those those interactions that you had growing up can you tell us some more about that sure great question you know so let me kind of paint the picture this would have been the 1980s early 90s so this is you know during that time we refer to it as the crack era the crack epidemic mm. um you know the um from our lens it was um kind of a um it wasn't kind of i mean there was an effort to what they call neutralized um, groups like the Black Panthers and things that they stood for. So drugs were kind of placed in our communities. And um, so Oakland was like one of the first places. And so it hit our area hard. <laughs> um, so this is the context. And so in the context of the crack era, now we reflect on it. It's, you know, we speak about it like the dope era. There's more of a, um, you know, a um, respect for, you know, what we went through and what we had to overcome. So my first probably engagement personally, well, number one, my dad was successful, a uh, successful businessman. So my first probably recollections were driving around town in his Porsche, mm. right, and being kind of conditioned to what to expect when it came to law enforcement and why we were always getting pulled over and how come we all, he always fit the description. You know, so those were things that you just notice growing up. And then as you become a certain age, that age is normally around 14, 16. As soon as you start looking that age group now, you go from being cute to being perceived as a threat. Uh, there's already like federal, you know, funding and pressure to target people like me. So, you know, the new Jim Crow written by Michelle Alexander, World Chronicles, you know, the stories of uh, uh, my peer group in Oakland in the 80s and the South in the 90s. So by 14, I was the only black male admitted to my college preparatory high school. That's the name of it. It's ranked number one private school in California this year, number four in the country. So it's, you know, elite level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I was visiting my cousin in West Oakland, walking across a parking lot. Three uh, black and white police cars come in to the uh, come in. <laughs> 
they they come in screeching tires, right? Full blast, screeching tires, jumping out, guns pulled, get on the ground. There's just me in an empty parking lot walking, right? Wow. So you have six officers, guns pulled. I'm jumping on the floor, have no idea what's going on, eating the dust and the dirt. And that led to a two-hour long detainment, right, um, where I was just, you know, I mean, everything from um, – you know, making fun of my name, Brandon Lee, telling me the school that I attended didn't exist. Just, you know, harassment uh, until luckily my cousins in the area um, got wind of what was happening and came in what I would just say applied legal pressure to convince them that it would be in everybody's best interest if they let me go home. And, you know, they, they did. Mm. Um, but had I not have, um, you know, my community support, my family to come and get me out that situation, you know, I very easily could have been, you know, another um, blip on the radar screen yeah. as far as the statistics. So that was like my first um, incident and reporting it to the OPD, thinking that I would get some help and not even getting a call back, right, from Internal Affairs. So that's like at 14 what, like, memorable event, you know, started me in this work. Hmm. Well, I mean, just speaking from, from my perspective, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, you're here, you know, like that is a scary situation. And if you didn't have, you know, whatever your story was that you, that you had growing up, if you didn't have all those things in place to get you to a place of safety in that moment, you know, the proverbial cracks, you know, you may have fallen, fallen through them. Mm -hmm. So, cracks. and, and you've ended up doing so much good across the country and internationally. Um, and so, uh, that's that's just an, a, an impactful thing, right? When you think about how many people did fall through the cracks that haven't had that chance to have that impact. Facts. Yeah. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> as you uh, as you've you've been doing this work now for a while, um, what what is your mission? Like 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 what drives you? You know. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, uh, and, and, and I won't say in the beginning, even still, um, really it was, you know, beginning at Oregon State as far as uh, Training for Transformation is the name of our business. Mm -hmm. And so Training for Transformation began um, in um, here in Oregon. Um, but I guess the journey between, as you mentioned, Chris, my origins from Oakland, um, having traveled abroad, um, having had that privilege and honor, having to learn how to navigate different systems. And as a black man, some places it's celebrated, other places it's targeted. Uh, I moved at the age of 16 to Texas. I was still in high school. So navigating, you know, the South <laughs> as an only child, mm -hmm. uh, attending Baylor University in Waco, Texas, uh, and spending another 13 years uh, in the South. You know, those that's where um, I would say um, my fraternalism and I will, we'll get into that later, but where I saw that your network and, you know, in terms of um, learning life lessons, have you, um, the elders, the multi-generational wisdom of how to navigate under pressure <laughs> was so vital, right? And, mm -hmm. and tapping into those who had come before me. So those were um, definitely um, lessons that I tried to integrate in my work now what moves me or what inspires me, I would have to say would be uh, an incident related to corrections, which was Sandra Bland. The Sandra Bland incident, uh, she was, uh, she died in police custody uh, in, um, it was in a jail near Prairie View a &M 
Prairie View A&M University where my grandfather mm. attended college. Uh, again, historically black university and that area where she got stopped is a road that I would travel often between Houston and Baylor University. Mm. So I knew that area very well, had mm. traveled that area before, had had, had my own run-ins with law enforcement while I was in college there. Uh, luckily, again, I had networks to be able to maneuver in and, and uh, family support to get out of those situations, but she didn't. And therein lies, like you said, not everybody makes it through. So as a black yeah. woman, right, without the same type of networks and privilege that I had, she was a prime example. So when that mm -hmm. happened, I was a, a new father of, uh, had a, I have a wonderful son, beautiful son, uh, but I, we had just had twin daughters. Mm -hmm. So when Sandra Bland occurred, that incident occurred, I'm sitting here with my two babies, I'm a stay-at-home dad. Mm -hmm. So that's what inspired me to kind of reflect on my experiences uh, not just what I've been through, but where I was able to support others through advocacy. And then now, like, okay, how do we how do we take all these lessons learned and move forward? And so that's where the book of community conscious policing um, came from. And I started writing as a stay-at-home dad. So mm. um, it's watching people who have been impacted who didn't have at least what I had to defend themselves was definitely an inspiration to say how can we – contribute to making this this space better than than how I found it you know staring in the eyes of my daughter so that was you know what encouraged me to 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 step up and to speak up wow yeah um I, I'm thinking about um all the connections that you've made as you were talking about how network is important and all that and and uh our connection where where we first intersected um <clears throat> was around the same time that uh, we had started this podcast. It was in July uh, of 2020. It was in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd. Um, there was a lot of unrest in the country, uh, especially here in Portland. Um, and we, uh, as my, my agency, we didn't know what to do. We were just like lost. We're like, we need to talk about this, but we don't know how to talk about that. Um, and one of the things that, that you're um, known for, one of the things that, that you pioneer is, is this idea of, of building relationships as as part of 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 everything that we do um and so you actually led um you and your uh your business training for transformation led a um conversation series within my agency um where we were able to just talk talk about how hard this is mm -hmm. and how we don't know how to feel and how we don't know how to process and um I think that uh, that's important um, when, we're, when we're thinking about, right, all this, this, this equity work, this, this, this critically important work that we do um, when it comes to, to advancing everybody. Um, we need to start with building relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's uh, definitely a, a key part in uh, building relationships and in particular, um, and there are steps and stages you know, everything, uh, everyone doesn't necessarily rush to being friends or rush. Uh, there has to be your, our own personal work that we need to do with ourselves first to be able to come together in our highest self. But, um, you know, I think where we try to specialize is bringing people together who may not otherwise come together. Hmm. So that is a specific skill that we've been working to cultivate that, um, you know, it's a uh, we, I don't believe we do it perfect, but I think we, we do make a sincere effort um, mm. in bridging those gaps. And sometimes bridging those gaps can be the difference. And I want to hear more about that, but can you go back and uh, you mentioned that kind of inner work that needs to be done as kind of, uh, that seems like foundational. Can you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. Um, 
So I would offer a little historical perspective. And of course, speaking of myself first and then speaking to the mm-hmm. broader community. So even how I approached this work, it, number one, it was from a space of survival in Oakland. So I did this work because we were being targeted. And, you know, um, based on the elders where I came from, you know, um, giving up and giving in and being anything less than, you know, um, a full thriving being was not an option. So therein lies the tension. (laughs) You know, where I'm from, you have no choice but to step up into the challenges that come before you. Um, So if you just talk about law and order, there's a principle uh, that we refer to as ma'at. Ma'at is uh, stems from uh, the colonizers who called it Egypt. We would refer to the space as Kemet. Uh, but this is a principle that's thousands of years old that many uh, um, communities of color have embraced and called it, called it their own uh, name. But Ma'at is essentially the law in harmony, uh, universal laws and principles that govern the world that we live in. And so for those of us who embrace ma'at and work to work within it, then the idea is that hopefully you'll thrive as a result. And for those who uh, seek to dominate, destroy, and to violate the universal principles, then usually the outcome isn't too positive. And so we start, number one, from, I guess, a place of centering um, our own um, ancient wisdom, centering our own communal wisdom, and operating from that place. So now when we talk about engaging with law enforcement in the community, right, we can have healthy conversations about accountability. You know, community oversight of law enforcement is something I have a lot of experience in for a reason. Uh, training with law enforcement is something I have experience in because, quite frankly, when it came to certain topics, we were just more qualified to do it, right? Yeah. And then now the, the phase now post-George Floyd is now healing from that trauma because without the healing aspects, uh, then there's that. Then we will be engaging with one another through filters of trauma nothing positive will come from that. So healing is an integral component. My wife, uh, business partner, she uh, is an initiate of uh, Tenahan Zen Buddhism. So the concept of inner being, what impacts me, impacts you, what impacts you, impacts me. So mm-hmm. they're just, um, they're steps and stages along our just um, path in our own cultural rites of passages that inform the work that we do. And so if you come from this space, then by the time we engage together, even if there's conflict, if there's we are um, coming from a place of preservation of life principles. Mm. So that informs, you know, the conversation Mm -hmm. of how we engage and kind of how we approach our work versus just what's the latest theory. And, you know, equity is just a new form of ma'at. These are these are principles that we have. Um, that have been embedded in the fabric of our communities for generations, right? So I don't need a yeah. cop to teach me how to be in order. I just have to embrace that which I already am. <laughs> hmm. Wow. Um, and, and as we're, we're getting to this uh, deep diving a little bit more into equity, I want to, you know, back up for a minute and, and really spell out um, the difference between equality and equity, right? Um, for, you know, a lot of people they don't recognize that those are different terms. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. I will um, I, I will integrate and I will use another antidote. You, you can tell I'm a storyteller. I love it. Yeah. Um, it's the way we communicate. Um, and even I'm talking about, Chris, a little bit where you were speaking about as far as the internal work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we encourage people to bring, to show up as their uh, their whole selves, 
but also as their highest self too. So mm. whatever that means to participants, like that is the expectation as well. Mm. Not perfection, but in your highest self. So when I arrived in Oregon, you know, the word that was tossed around was colorblind. Um, engaging with students and being colorblind, I don't see color, right? And in that regard, that came from the 1980s diversity work um, and um, treating everybody the same. Well, the problem is in a society that's embedded upon native genocide, slavery, yada, 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 the Oregon exclusion laws. I mean, so we can't treat everybody the same if everybody hasn't had the same principles, and particularly if people have been targeted because of their race. So the notion uh, is just, it it actually causes more harm. So equity, it takes into, at least this is my version. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have different takes on it, but my version is we have to consider the power dynamics in play. So race is not about race is not a real thing. It's not a social genetic thing, right? It's a it's more like a one might call it more like a caste system. Um, so the power di- so equity um, it includes the power dynamics that are that are embedded within race. Hmm. Yeah. So um, even in when I was NAACP. Right, we would lead the conversation with race because, for example, the Oregon exclusion laws that's how they targeted us, that's how they stripped us of rights. So, we have to use systemic rights against the systemic problem. But there were also caveats. So, even there were times when I was NAACP legal redress chairman in the city of Corvallis where we made an, an honest dis, uh, in a um, a what do we call it? We made a decision to even to make sure we included white residents who were lived in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Not that we excluded anyone, mm-hmm. but we made it attention to also because there were dynamics that while these folks may not have been from a BIPOC community, their rural status still had certain circumstances that were inequitable. Yeah. And so uh, so anyway, so that's the difference. Equity, it, it ties in a power dynamic where equality um, is more just about the color spectrum. Got it. I mean, that was really helpful for me. I mean, that was a, 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 probably the best definition of equity that I've ever heard. But, I, you know, I, that's I'm, I'm very unformed at this point. Um, are there other kind of terms that, that, you know, in order to kind of get enter into this space and continue this conversation at a high level, for me, I need to make sure that I have a good understanding of some of the, 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 these kind of critical terms as we continue this conversation. What, what else besides equity do you feel like is worth kind of defining? There is... As there is to anything, there's levels to this work. So depending on who you're engaged with and where they're coming from. So again, I've kind of shared a little bit about kind of the initiatic perspective, myself and partners and co-author um, being um, uh, initiates in our own respective right uh, in our own respective cultural rites of passages, where our elders teach us and deem us qualified to be to teach or to sit amongst mm-hmm. them. Um, without something like that, then we're just relying on dominant degrees and dominant validation to be empowered, to be in a space of leadership. And a lot of times that perpetuates more harm because those spaces where we get these degrees are also steeped in white supremacy culture, et cetera. Mm. So a couple of terms that have risen that are, or that are rising out of the work that I'm currently doing and will have been embedded so number one, of course, race. We lead the conversation with race. Patriarchy. 
Mm-hmm. Patriarchy is another one um, where you know someone like myself would find would be in a space instead of a target identity, I would be in space of a dominant identity um, as a man. Mm-hmm. So as a man, I have certain, and this is just my basic definition, uh, but as a man, I have certain privileges just in my gender role as someone who may not. Maybe it's so patriarchy is the kind of also in the embedded power dynamics of being a man and um, uh, being a and and the way that I'm expressed as a man, um, how it's quote unquote the norm that uh, society would measure anyone else off of as mm-hmm. far as gender. So for anyone who doesn't measure up as a man as far as how society would define, well then they're going to have a whole myriad of issues that for me I would be probably completely blind to. Mm. Uh, so patriarchy is definitely one. Colonialism. Colonialism uh, is, uh, you know, um, takes into consideration the power dynamics of who's in control of that occupying space. So I'll give you a quick uh, anecdote to illustrate that. As a teacher of English, uh, teacher of English to speakers of other languages, I taught students from all around the world. So in order for them to perform optimally in my class, I had to know how to say hello in all of their languages. I had to understand the pragmatics, which is whose hand do I shake, who's, who can appropriately do a kiss on the cheek or two, who do I not shake hands with. Mm. And I had to understand how to engage all of my students in the same space every day. And the only thing they had in common was they didn't speak the same language. Everything mm. else was different. Mm. So there was a time when uh, the uh, there was an uh, earthquake in Japan and we were told explicitly by our administration not to talk about it. Well, as a teacher, wow. I can't not talk about it. <laughs> so yeah. I went against what was, you know, kind of that mandate, and I opened up the can. And so in class, and I'm sharing, you know, how do we feel? So everybody's going around the class. I'm, you know, sorry this happened, this and that. And then we got to a student who said, good, I'm happy it happened. Good. Hmm. Whoa. Time out. Yeah. <laughs> no, now I've opened something up as a teacher. Now I've got to I've got to deal with it, right? And so, well, now I've got to. If we go deeper into this, it could get worse. Or so I'm here, and I've got to go into it now. So I I asked, you know, why? And so he explained to me the uh, as being a student from South Korea mm. and the colonial relationship between Japan and South Korea, and for him losing his grandparents in that conflict right so for him he's coming from a place of intergenerational trauma and that took his grandfather away and so that's where because i was ignorant of the colonial relationship of the countries in my space i can perpetuate even more harm if you haven't seen the additional content we have at correctionscommunity.com join the conversation with chris and marcus on instagram where you can learn more about the show and be part of the community thanks for listening So these are just different ways that equity can manifest themselves in a variety of different ways if we are not conscious. And that's why our brand is community conscious policing, 21st century conscious leadership. Um, so, yeah, yeah those um, would be a few terms. Uh, a, a term you 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 just used at the end in there that I want to uh, look look a little deeper at is generational trauma. Um, that is a term that is new to me now. It's generational trauma is not new to me, um, but the term and and understanding it is new to me. And um, I was reading a book recently and 
part of this book, they had like uh, exercises you could do. Um, and uh, one of them was to like imagine your ancestors from three generations ago, right? So this would have been 1800s type ancestors. And, you know, I'm black and white. And, uh, you know, it took me a minute for my brain to, to process who am I looking at? Am I looking at a white person or am I looking at a black person? Um, and then eventually thought of a black person. I thought of a, a older black woman, gray hair, wearing like overalls, kind of the, the, the standard Southern look. Um, and then I started to cry because mm. I didn't like know mm. them, mm. you know? And, and it was like, it was this really emotional moment for me. And um, as I started reading more in the book, it was like talking about generational trauma and, and, and how we've learned you know, so many things about how we interact, how we uh, treat each other, how we treat ourselves, how we treat, you know, other black bodies, how we treat white bodies, how we, you know, like, like going into all of that. And it was just really powerful for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I think a lack of an understanding or an appreciation of that also is kind of how people, I don't know, how, how maybe people push push back against modern experiences and saying, well, how, how does slavery mm -hmm. affect us today? Mm -hmm. How is that possible? Those are, these are both great examples. So I'll, again, lead with my own experience. Um, some of these I'll get into, um, I share more in depth. So the first book that I wrote, Best Practices in Community Conscious Policing, a reflection on law enforcement community building workshops. It actually was more of a story of the work of Training for Transformation and its origins, and I really tried to keep my own lived experience out of it and have it more of a manual. Now, per, post George Floyd, even that's not acceptable even for me in the work that I do. I've had to really bear it all for the reader and you know allow the reader, the listener, to be kind of not the judge, but to be able to to assess me and to give that sniff test, right? Does it is this the real thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think all leaders have to be willing to do that. Um, so a little bit of what I share in the, in the next edition, which is uh, community conscious policing, um, a guide for people's justice and law enforcement solutions. One thing I found was uh, law enforcement and community didn't usually didn't have the same information that they were learning from. Yeah. So this book is, a, is an effort to bridge that gap. Hmm. Um, but in answer to your question in regards to, so number, number one, what I would offer Marcus is from a, from a, um, what, I'm not a counselor, so I don't know, I'm not speaking from an expert, but um, from a Western lens, you might have described a traumatic, a traumatic reflection hmm. of the process that it took you to, re-engage with an ancestor, right? And maybe you just kind of put, um, personified a, a pain, a personified a trauma. From an ancestral lived experience lens, right? Um, and um, back in the day, you didn't have to like go through an initiation because the elders had done it. The pillars had done it. So Martin Luther King was not a Prince Hall Mason, but his father was. Mm. The two people, you know, Dr. Ralph Abernathy and uh, uh, Jesse Jackson, two people around, close to him were. So you didn't have to necessarily go through it yourself because it was the culture around you. Now we're so isolated to where there's a big difference. So what I would offer is the way I would view the reflection of your ancestor is, uh, and so I've never, I can't speak for you, 
unless it's just a painful, traumatic incident. But outside of that, I've never cried for a stranger. Mm-hmm. Unless the incident was so traumatic that as a person, but so my point is if your uh, response was to cry or to share or to have an emotional connection, then our lens would say, no, you 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 had it at a moment with the, with the with your ancestors. Like you came in connection with something that was already embedded within you. Mm-hmm. And it's just like you kind of scraped something off and then stumbled upon something. It was like, whoa. And mm-hmm. that sense of knowing comes through you in a way that is can be earth shattering, mm-hmm. right? And so I would offer that that was a very real experience and you can go even deeper with that and with that deeper level of engagement. So as far as what does it look like today? Mm-hmm. Slavery looks like today. So my father died at 37 of hypertension and kidney failure. His brother died at 40 years old of hypertension and kidney failure. My grandfather, who I never met, died of hypertension and kidney failure. So at 18, what did you think was going to happen to me, right? And so yeah. that's how I live my life. Um, so these threads that come from these traumatic incidents are still embedded within us. And when we are placed in similar conditions, then those incidents start to kind of like pop off in our bodies. And if you keep going through them, then they'll start to connect themselves into this like pain trauma web. And so for us, the way the human brain works, and I'm not a doctor, but I'm just telling you real talk, that our brain can't decipher between the real thing and just looking at it on TV. So our brain is reacting to these videos of people looking like me getting killed and murdered over and over and over and over and over. So those parts of my body, then boom, they wake up. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start to get the sickle cell and the, all the racism in public health, all of the issues that impact black, brown bodies, but for others, it's not that bad, even with COVID. So that's that thread that are ever present, right, as far as trauma. And if trauma healing is not a part of the process, then you might survive in Oakland, one out of four, you know, when I was coming up, one out of four people, uh, one out of four black men would get killed in a homicide between the ages of 16 and 24, that's 25%. Uh-huh. If you survived a homicide, one out of three was gonna see the inside of a jail cell, corrections, right, that's 33%. If you survived that, then you had racism in public health. That's where you, what I just brought up, the hypertension, the kidney failure, the this, mm-hmm. that. So you see all those landmines a black man has to, yeah. Or black families have to navigate just to make it to 40 for me to sit well, here with you, right? And a lot didn't make it. There, there's so much that I think about just starting behind the eight ball, right? Like, But I, I had never really considered the, the physiological components that you just kind of surfaced for me. So uh, that's that's really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. And as we, uh, you know, you, you brought up corrections in, in, in part of that story. Um, and so it just kind of uh, perfect segues into, uh, you know, we we're talking about community corrections here, right? And uh, when we first brought this up to you, we, we met over Zoom and talked about kind of uh, what, we what we were wanting to do and, and the conversation we wanted to have with you. And uh, one of the things that, that Chris and I have been asking people is uh, when you hear the term community corrections, what does that bring up to you? Like, what is that? What what feelings does that evoke for you, right? And uh, uh, you uh, you responded, and it was just like th- those words are at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's our field, you know. And so, uh, tell me tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, you know, number one, I just have to. Uh, you know, our motto at Training for Transformation is real life, real talk, real change. So, number one, I think it it says something about you two to be able to engage in real li- in real life conversations, right, in different perspectives, because um, otherwise, these types of 
voices wouldn't be uplifted. Yeah. So I just want to honor that. Uh, second, um, I, another historical perspective. So we brought up, uh, you brought up the uh, historian. I'm no longer in serving that role, but um, uh, forever I will be educating around the topic. So Prince Hall Freemasonry is, um, um, it is the oldest active organization started and run by Africans in America. That's how we refer to ourselves back then um, in this country. So anything that you can think of in regards to organizing, uh, anything in regards to the black community, and then, of course, other communities who came after us utilize these lessons learned for themselves, um, started in some way, shape, or form with the Prince Hall family. So the Prince Hall Freemasons was the fraternity. The Order of Eastern Stars was the, was the sorority. So for, uh, uh, so was for women. So, for example, uh, Rosa Parks in the movement. Uh, was a member of the Order of Eastern Stars. Uh, so th- a lot of times we'll get spoon-fed our leaders as individuals, but not understand the network and how they engaged systemically um, to respond to these issues. So when we speak about, um, you know, the origins go back to like 1778, 1784, right? So Prince Hall was an American revolutionary. He fought in the Boston Massacre, the first person to die uh, in the American Revolution was a black man, Christmas Addicts. The list goes on and on and on as far as what he contributed and was recognized posthumously by the Cambridge City Council as uh, uh, as a black founding father. Um, has a monument of on Harvard Square recognizing his contribution. So the uh, history here kind of has to be uh, uplifted to even understand where I would be coming from. Yeah. Uh, and so when you think about corrections for me, now, number one, I'm a novice. I speak. I spend more of my time on this on this actual stop because I feel like that's where everything begins. But the traffic stop, right? Okay. The traffic stop, and so that's where it has been my training in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So respectfully, I can't speak as an expert in corrections. So let me just begin and recognize my own limitations. Um, but I w- what I would offer as far as just in theory, the idea of corrections for me stems, I believe, 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, there were when slaves would uh, run away, in quotes, run away from uh, the plantation in search of freedom. Then there were kind of like groups that were deputized to be able to go and get these slaves and bring them back on the plantation where they belong. So this idea is still kind of what I experienced as a freeborn black person, right? Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm doing things academically in whatever genre, right, that is... Um, extraordinary or or just simply um, living my life, there's going to be this reminder and this force to bring me back and put me back on that plantation, right? So the historically, the idea of community and corrections from my community would be adverse to one another. Yeah. If there was investment in community as there was in corrections, then there probably wouldn't be as much need for corrections. Um, so that's kind of where historically um, for me that it uh, for me, I just kind of described a headache. It was like, man, and it was like, boom. But with that being said, um, and getting to know you all and sitting here, I, I, I more understand of where you all were coming from in terms of um, what it should be and what it could be. Um, so I respect that vision. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, and that's that's kind of what, what Chris and I are all about is, is, is trying to to better and advance uh, community corrections to improve lives, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that's our whole 
goal and mission here. Mm-hmm. Um, I get it. What uh, what difference do you see? Like like any like critical differences that you see uh, with your experience working with law enforcement versus you know somebody like like us in in the community corrections field? I think there are a couple of things that um, are helpful. Number one, uh, we had a chance to meet without either one of us being in our quote unquote uniforms. Mm-hmm. So we were able to uh, meet kind of uncloaked. So I've never seen you both in your respective uniforms as it relates to what your jobs are or may have been. Um, a lot of times that can be like a block depending on where one is on their spectrum. Number two, I have mm-hmm. to honor that I'm able to engage in this conversation because I did have a certain level of accountability. Without having a certain levels of accountability on my journey, then I probably wouldn't be open to um have the capacity to engage in more of these types of conversations. So I would say, um, you know, in general, I could sum up where law enforcement in general is or sh- is and or should be transitioning from is simply, you know, as a fraternal, as a fraternal guy, it's fraternal culture. I mean, so the a patriarchal culture that centers, centers, you know, what it means to be a man, survival of the fittest, the strongest, the, you know, all the stuff that nowadays is quite frankly outdated. (laughs) You know, so that was the culture when I first began working with law enforcement that we stepped into, you know, in some spaces, not all, some spaces were very inviting, some spaces were very transparent, some spaces really demonstrated their values with us. And without Mm -hmm. those types of partnerships, we wouldn't be here. But on the other side, there were a lot who, uh, a lot of bravado, a lot of um, characteristics that got them in trouble. You know, and they had to figure it out the hard way. Uh, with you all, or at least within this experience, and what I would hope to be in other uh, corrections experience, um, is uh, a human approach. Just, just be human. Yeah. You know, I'm trying. Hopefully, I didn't approach you with any titles. You know, just be human. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, at least in this experience, right? At least in our engagements together, you all have been very thorough with me. I can tell the amount of uh, investment that went into having a conversation. So that's kind of what we do, mm-hmm. where we might others might be focused on what's the outcome and results driven, and however we get there is is is, yeah. is it doesn't t- it doesn't matter what it takes to get there. As long as we get the, we're very process, and how we get there is probably even more important than the result. And, um, you know, just so for me is a core value of it is an absolute privilege and honor to be in a position to engage with the community that you serve. So if you get the privilege, then you approach it as though it's an altar in between you and the community. You bring your highest self and you you come just as equipped as you would for that job interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, I guess, traits that, um, you know, I've experienced uh, in the short time with you all compared to kind of the culture that when we first began a few years ago, we, you know, there was some uh, training space we walked into that was straight up hostile. Yeah. And uh, we had to navigate those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things that we focus on here uh, in at Corrections Community is um, uh, change leadership. Right. And, and the power of of of. Implementing best practices and being the best version of ourselves, right? Being that higher self that mm-hmm. you that you mentioned, um, and something that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. was uh, like uh, conscious leadership. and And can you can you talk about right as you're you know one of the people leading the charges for change in uh, in Oregon, but across the nation, right? Um, how do we help our leaders? How do we help you know the people that are 
you know, tight title, titler, titular mm-hmm. leaders. Uh, I knew I was going to butcher that <laughs> word because it's really hard to say. Um, um, but are, you know, in those, those positions of that patriarchal power, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do we influence that conscious leadership change? Mm-hmm. Depending on where you are, um, and my answer is so I'll approach this by saying again from a historical lens obviously that's kind of like my my background and how I approach this work you know when we came up it was more like okay who are you are you uh, Dr. Martin Luther King nonviolent are you Malcolm X are you you know by any means necessary are mm-hmm. you Huey Dr. Huey self-defense like you had to like pick an ideology and, and really nowadays especially with technology um, I would say in regards to change leadership that it's more about you know, now you have the technology. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to have access to discover wisdom in whatever lane you're, you know, you're choosing. Whether that's um, what is it? Uh, um, abolishing law enforcement, defunding law enforcement, where, whatever you're coming from. Um, and so, depending on what you're dealing with locally, I would say lean on whatever ideology serves you best from history because there are different different law enforcement agencies have different accrediting agencies different so there's no one size fits all um but for myself i think it was um what was unique again coming from an initiatic perspective was we had things like the code of human behavior these are um um, kind of like the 77 commandments culturally that we work to adhere to so um again uh, they prioritize preservation of life principles. So when we got, whether it's the U.S. Constitution or whatever the code, you know, the laws, or et cetera, that's fine. We we ethically work within the law, but we had something of our own culture to compare it to. So if you look at Prince Hall, who was the first, as far as I'm concerned, first black, first civil rights organizer of this country, he took the U.S. Constitution or, or, or the uh, Declaration of Independence and compared it to um, um, universal laws and principles that we all adhere to. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're making documents that don't adhere to, it's something that governs us all. Then, right? And so, without a knowledge of self and who we are, then then you'll accept anything. And uh, I think finally, what I would say is, um, there's been scenarios where I've had to sue and win uh, for uh, police misconduct um, that resulted in a monetary settlement. Uh, resulted in disciplinary actions against the officers. There's times where uh, I was not, the officers were, uh, were um, the institution agreed with the officers and I wasn't satisfied with it. So we worked to shut down the Internal Affairs Department and reallocate that money to fund the Community Police Review Board to oversee right. our own complaints against police. So depending on what the scenario calls for, um, will determine, you know, if uh, if it's an individual issue or if it's a pattern of practice. And so sometimes, you know, uh, we make leadership an offer they can't refuse. And whether they know it or not, back to conscious leadership, this is a cultural paradigm shift, organizational paradigm shift that's occurring, period, in the world. So step out of law enforcement and community for any leadership that's not a part of shifting their culture, um, uh, in which they govern, meaning from left brain to incorporate integrating right brain strategies to at a variety of different levels, you know, being more uh, equitably um, sound. 
if you're not making no shift, you're going to find yourself outdated, irrelevant, in trauma, facing liabilities, the cause of violence. Like, you know, you don't have to worry. It, it, it will <laughs> you you will find yourself in a situation. So yeah. it's, you know, sometimes we make the change and sometimes we're a part of the change. Got it. But, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, was, I, I share that belief that this is what we're talking about. What you just described, Brandon, is just it's, it's critical competencies and actions. For, for modern leaders or the next generation of leaders. Now you've had some, uh, your work through Training for Transformation, you've got to work with, uh, advise, counsel, uh, some senior leaders, at least in, in the law enforcement side of things. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about like, what have you seen, how have those interactions gone for the mm-hmm. most part? Um, what, do you, what do you find uh, maybe consistent for the, the, the more receptive leaders, the strong leaders, the more effective leaders? Generally speaking, I'll be honest with you i mean i was (laughs) i was quite surprised at speaking about leadership of law enforcement Mm -hmm. in general and even in my time in here in oregon specifically i think overall in general leaderships law enforcement leaderships and again my background has been with law enforcement organizations not necessarily in corrections Mm -hmm. you know is um all of them may not get or understand racial equity but any of them, and I think it's because they are in jobs that could be life and death any day. Mm-hmm. So I think they understand the importance of being on point. Mm-hmm. And I've, we've gotten a, a lot of positive reception from law enforcement leaders who saw how we were working to engage, the benefits of it. Um, and invited us in, uh, and when I say invited us in, that's how we got an- got access to the police uh, law enforcement training, at least statewide. Mm-hmm. And we were able to critique it from a, a, a community lens and have come. When I first started this this work, I didn't know the difference between a, 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 a chief, a captain. A, you put somebody in front of me, I'm gonna tell them the truth, and that's kind of mm-hmm. how it it began. And I think a lot of them we, we appreciated um, the candor, and they could get. Um, a perspective and version of the truth that was well informed that they couldn't get otherwise. Um, so I was, I was, I was quite. Um, it was, I mean, in some ways, it was healing for me that mm-hmm. there was such a good reception. And then how to bring the rest of the department on board, I think, is another question. And another question as far as politicians who control the funding, mm-hmm. for them to understand the importance of funding small businesses like mine versus the same old two-step that keep getting us into that stuff. So that's kind of more where the struggle mm-hmm. has been, I think, for us. I really appreciate that you said that. Like, you don't know the difference between person's titles you know it's like you're you're a person you know and and it seems like that is a foreign concept to a lot of folks just that it is to me like yeah Yeah. like like when i look at at someone like you are a person first i don't care if you are the president of the united states if you are you know a general in the armed force you're a person and i'm going to address you as a person you know, and, and I feel good about myself in doing that. And, you know, whether or not you receive that well, that's on you. You know, that's, that's kind of the way that I think. And, and, and I know I'm in the minority on that because, uh, as, as Brandon mentioned earlier, like there is this, this dominant culture um, that we have all been conditioned to live in mm-hmm. um, and trying to go against the grain on that is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is something that requires intention Mm -hmm. it requires work 
um, I catch myself, you know, as I, as I do my work now, like I work in an office of equity and inclusion. Like it's, I get paid to do this. Mm. Um, and I still struggle with it. It's hard. It is hard mm-hmm. to remember that the person across from me mm-hmm. is my boss, mm-hmm. but you're a person first, mm-hmm. you know, like that's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. Facts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> As, as we've been we've been rapping here, uh, one of the things that, that's just been kind of floating around in my mind is uh, I want to ask you this question. Um, if if I ask somebody else's question, I got a really good answer. And so I want to ask you as, as, as we're, we're talking. Um, yeah. Uh, if you were given the abilities to be the, I don't know, uh, master of corrections and law enforcement, and you could institute one change, implement mm. one change and implement it perfectly mm. so that every officer in the state of Oregon, nationally or whatever, um, has this. Mm-hmm. What do you change? Um, it's going to be the process. Um, and I, quite frankly, I think that community conscious policing is that for us, mm. is that for me. Um Community conscious policing, while it covers police accountability, it covers law enforcement training, it covers healing from the tr- healing from trauma. You know, we've talked a lot about community members, our trauma, but we've got to be honest, based on the research and the data, right, as far as law enforcement officers, uh, and this is no excuse, right, um, because as a profession, you're paid tax dollars by the community that you serve. There's a, so there's an embedded power dynamic that has to be teased out compared to someone like I've described who... We've just been historically marginalized and oppressed. I mean, that's a different level of pressure. But, you know, the health disparities in um, in law enforcement uh, field, you know, higher levels of domestic violence, all suicides in middle-aged white men. I mean, there are tr- tr- things wreaking havoc in regards to havoc even within law enforcement. Um, so I think... Um, in regards to your question, community conscious policing was to ensure that the people who would be most impacted, are whether that's policy, training, whatever, are centered. That means if I have to choose from the word of a police officer versus the word of a community member who was historically been a victim of these types of crimes, if somebody gets the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to censure the experience of the person who's most impacted. Mm by default, right? And if it doesn't pass the sniff test or whatever, then things equitably will be worked and ironed out. Um, but no longer will that that community member have to prove that racism existed. We already assume that it's here based on the historical information that we, you know, that we know of. So uh, that's what I would offer is that the process is the key factor that we do is to, who are the people who don't have access to NAACP? Who are the the people who are having the language barrier so they don't even know who to call? So if you've lived in another country, not visited as a study abroad, I mean had an apartment, woke up with the people, went to work with the people, ate with the people, then you know what it's like that to be that other and to not have access to the same rights and et cetera. So if you come from that place, then who are those folks who don't have the access and how do we find them and authentically? So for us, I would always do the community uh, outreach. So in, for any training that we did, I would do the outreach. And it was about going, discovering who were those that were most impacted, where they were, how do I speak to them in lay language if I can, 
and how do I roll up my sleeves and work on what's important for them right now? Mm-hmm. And in that process, if I'm able to authentically engage or be invited into their space, then they're like, yo, well, then what you do? And you get to talk, and they're like, yo, that happened to you? Well, man, I, I'm working with the person who's over that. If you want to just come, tell them. Mm-hmm. And set up the scenario and prepare you know, the institution and prepare them to have this engagement. And so community conscious policing was that process to where everybody is able to contribute, confront share, uh, confront their own biases, uh, give their uh, feedback, glean the information, and then go back with the leadership and say, so my feedback, it doesn't say cop in law for, uh, cop in community. Everybody showed up in regular clothes. Mm-hmm. Nobody had no guns. So the feedback I got is just people in this area. And so based on this feedback, the, this is what they're saying that they want to see. So now let's go look at how you're allocating your budget. Who are you hiring? How are you hiring them? What do you? So we look at all of your processes and inform them with the information that was gleaned directly from people who are impacted the most and centering what they want. And we help the institution integrate that. So by the end of the process, then it's like everybody doesn't get what they. Everybody doesn't get. Everyone doesn't get everything that they want, but everyone should be able to see something that they contributed into what their local police or jails or whatever looks like. Mm-hmm. So without this type of process where um, people who are most impacted are centered and at the architectural table of things that are going to impact them, you know, we'll be playing ring around the rosy to the end of time. And that's where mm-hmm. someone like me was like, oh, I'm getting off the hamster wheel. Yep. Historical perspective, been there before, seen that before, mm-hmm. done that before. And so our community conscious policing was kind of like the Tesla model. We, instead of trying to make the new bins, the new eight, 10 series, just for, scrapped the whole idea of a car. And just what's the best way to get power sustainably? Oh, let's lose a sun mm. battery. I love that. And we just reconstructed what a training experience should look like. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I ease the, the, the term confronting bias um, in that segment. And um, and I've been thinking a lot about that, about how bias can show up in our assessments and just in our, our interactions. And I, I'm, I'm really been hyper-focused on, on, on what those interactions look like from a, a parole and probation officer and a mm-hmm. client, someone who is just involved or someone, a person of color who happens to be just as involved. What do those interactions look like? And, and, and bias is one of those things that just, it's so insidious. And that confrontation of it um, I, I, I haven't seen, you used, you used ham, hamster wheel as well. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen a lot of real successful approaches to resolving that and reconciling that bias mm-hmm. and moving beyond that. Mm-hmm. And that's where my struggle is right now mm-hmm. is, is how do we, how do we approach that? So it's not just a conversation or an assessment, mm-hmm. you know, you've heard these, these bias assessments, mm-hmm. but how do we actually affect change mm-hmm. in these areas? And I think that's a perfect mm-hmm. time to, to bring up your book because that is, is that the focus of your book? It is. I'm, yeah. It is. I appreciate it. Uh, so, again, the title, uh, Community Conscious Policing, A Guide for People's Justice and Law Enforcement Solutions. Uh, so to save you some time, uh, there's an article that I would share with your listeners. Um, it's called Diversity, was it? Diversity Trainings Usually Fail. Mm. Here's, what you can do, here's what you can do to make lasting changes, I believe. 
Uh, shout out to Dr. Uh, Gassam, who was the uh, author and interviewer. She's an incredible talent, and I'm um, eternally indebted, uh, grateful for her for inviting me for an interview. So uh, this was an interview I did in Forbes, and it was an opportunity to kind of lay out some of my research, not my research, but just understanding after doing this work around implicit bias as a reference for folks, um, because this will be a, a stepping stone that we all have to come across. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, check out, so let's just talk about implicit bias. The implicit, implicit association test, based on my understanding, originated out of Harvard University. There were maybe, to my recollection, about three, like, kind of co-founders well, what we found over time is a couple of things, and I'm a little rusty here, so you have to go read the article. That has the technical information as right um, as stated and quoted in the research. But based on my limited recollection, this is what I knew to be true. So, for example, I would speak to a student and say, uh, you know, be called into a situation with law enforcement, and it's around bias. But when I talk to the person, they're like, no, nah, he stopped me because I was black. I don't know what you mean about unconscious bias. He saw me. It was a black dude. He stopped me. I mean, I can't get no more racist than that. So, yeah. you know, again, the versions of the stories. And so implicit association test. So let me just, you know, for those who haven't taken it, and I haven't taken it. Let me be honest. I haven't taken it. But what I've studied about it, right, is a couple of the issues could be, you know, um, yes, um, it's not a, uh, uh, it's subjective. So how one could, perform one day on a bias assessment compared to how the same person performs next week on a bias assessment. I mean, it could fluctuate and mm -hmm. it can vary. There are variables involved, right? So yes, this maybe the bias is being assessed, but if I'm tired this day and versus more well-rested that day, Right. And it's the same thing on the street. If I catch you in the first hour and you, you know, as a law enforcement officer or corrections, you're going to give me all your splendor. You're going to be patient. You're going to be understanding. You're going to remember everything we talked about today, mm -hmm. and you're going to do everything right. Let me catch you on hour 13. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, that's where the real life, real talk, real change. So, you know, can we associate with this bias, et cetera? So what they found was there's no causal link. So let's just say I got someone who's easily very biased, right, and I can probably tell who they're biased against, right? Um <clears throat> There's no causal link that says if I can rid him of that bias, then he's going to discriminate less. Or a causal bias, a link that says if I can prove he's biased on this test, that he's going to go out and discriminate more than anybody else. Hmm. So the causal link is not there. And so it was, I'm not going to say it was promoted, but it, let's just say it was not uplifted and there was a lot of money back. It, this is my opinion. This is my opinion. Sure. But a lot of money. Uh, going back and forth between institutions and white men around implicit bias, but nothing hitting the street for me. Nothing helping yeah. you if you've encountered me. We still having to deal with real life circumstances. So that's why nothing has helped. Just a lot of money's been spent, a lot of money's been made. So for me, it was about interrupting, like literally disrupting that whole you know process, right? And so we do things by, you know, consciously, you know, what uh, you could do in a bias assessment compared to what I can do in a role play based on experiential learning. No. You're not going to ever hold a clue to me, uh, candle to me ever, mm -hmm. because we're dealing with real life, real talk, real change. You're still stuck on the theory and the in the head. We over here go shifting from head to embodiment. 
So the definite caliber officer I'm going to engage with in that moment, man, I mean, he's going to have in that one moment, you know, of a gun or whatever, the considerations that's going to be flashed before his mm-hmm. head compared mm-hmm. to somebody who just takes some bias assessment and got some little, yeah. you know what I mean? It's going to be night and day. Yeah. So they're really, uh, anything around implicit bias, I think is, um, I can't say anything and everything, but um, that's just not a reality that I live in. Interesting. Got it. Wow. Well, uh, what a great conversation we've had today. Um, There is still so much more to unpack, so much more to talk about um, and have these real talks about it. Um, But we're out of time today. Mm -hmm. Um, We uh, very much appreciate you being here. Um, One of the things that uh, we like to do when we end our episodes is uh, like to take a few things that we've talked about just through our conversation um, that folks that are listening to this podcast, whether they work in uh, community corrections, whether they're just kind of the casual listener, um, that they can implement in their daily life today to start being better, right? And so uh, I pulled, I wrote a lot down, but I pulled four key ones out here. Um, and so I'm gonna start uh, the first one, uh, and this is kind of how we started, is, is the power of storytelling. Right. We can't just have quantitative data when working with communities of color. It's not enough. Um, We need to have a conversation um, and value that over just focusing on the outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that leads into the second one, which is start with building relationships. Mm -hmm. Let that be your starting point. Um, Bringing people together. Um, as you said, is part of your mission is bringing people together who may not have already been together um, is critical to advancing change when it comes to equity work, mm-hmm. um, especially in corrections and law enforcement lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the last two are, are things you said that, that have just really resonated with me. Show up as your whole self and your highest self, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean that at all. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking about showing up as my whole self, and I've really focused and centered that. But I haven't thought about showing up as my highest self as well. And so that's something that I like. I, I can do right now, um, and I, I love that. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And then the last one um, is something that, that you said over and over again and you modeled over and over again, which is lead with your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Don't speak for others. Tell your own story. Mm-hmm. Well said. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah, um, Brandon, this was just uh, obviously we, we we record these and we hope that the 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 wisdom you've shared today resonates for for anyone who's who's comes across this information, this content. But I can tell you selfishly, for me personally, this has been really valuable as well. I mean, I I, I would have valued this had the recorders been off, mm-hmm. right? Just sitting and connecting with you and yeah. hearing your story and how that has led to the actions you've taken, the passion that you have for this work, and and also just. I'm thinking about always how do I make this actionable and Marcus always does a fantastic job of summarizing those steps Mm -hmm. for us at the end of this. So, um, yeah, any, any other kind of parting words? Number one, um, again, thank you for inviting me into your space, uh, for anyone who, um, had the chance to listen to our conversation together. You know, I appreciate the invitation to share space, uh, with corrections as a, um, um, as a uh, career, and for anyone who, you know, I'm speaking for someone, uh, well, my wife, you know, she's a Cambodian refugee, so there's an aspect of the idea of war that is we don't agree with as peace builders. 
But I have to acknowledge, you know, my father, all of my uncles, both of my grandparents, they all served in the military, the tradition of Prince Hall Freemasonry. Um, so anyone who is of service, um, public considers themselves a public servant, you know, um, I can want to make sure I part this uh, conversation um, out of respect for anybody who's showing up to do their best um, in times that are that are difficult. The last two things that I will leave on is um, that I would probably add to your list is even for myself, you know, let's do our own work. If you want to do something today, man, start unpacking your own privilege. What are the spaces where you hold dominance? What are the spaces where you hold privilege? Um, if you're someone who's impacted, uh, you know, man, how do you tap into your cultural uh, your cultural resources, your uh, ancient wisdom. You know, our ancestors have been thriving under this kind of pressure for millennia. You know, we taught law and order to humanity. So tap into uh, who you are. And um, I would say, yeah, um, that's that's why we consider consciousness to be our brand. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, for Corrections Community, Marcus Ford, Brandon Link, Chris Chandler, thank you. If you like this episode and what we're doing here, do us a favor and tell a friend. It definitely helps to subscribe to the show so you don't miss new episodes and positive reviews makes us more visible to others. But there's nothing more powerful than word of mouth. So please help others find us. Turn someone you know onto Corrections Community and we'll do our part not to disappoint. As always, thanks for listening.